1580. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. Glad that you were hanging out with us today. Uh, in this hour, our second hour, do elite colleges perpetuate a system that consistently favor the wealthy and discriminate against people of color and the poor? Put another way, are elite colleges actually a driver of residential and school segregation that contribute to the nation's increasing social and economic inequality? In short, do elite colleges divide us as a nation? In this hour, a no-holds-barred conversation with Evan Mandery about how America's elite colleges help to keep the rich rich, making it harder than ever to fight poverty, economic immobility, and inequality his book is called Poison Ivy, How Elite Colleges Divide Us. Get it? Ivy League, Poison Ivy, How Elite Colleges Divide Us. I am delighted to have Evan Mandry on this program for the hour. Evan, how are you, sir? I'm fine. Thanks so much for having me. It's a great delight to have you on. Thank you for the book. Thank you for the time. Glad we've got an hour to work through a lot of what you have uh, written, which is challenging um, um, in a lot of ways uh, to, to, to read. Um, challenging in part because now more than ever, you know, the numbers aren't what they need to be. We'll talk about that. But there are more African-Americans who are attending some of these Ivy League schools. And I know that the book is not just about Ivy League institutions. Never mind the title, Poison Ivy. I've got colleagues here who went to Harvard and Yale and Princeton, all kinds of folk who I work with at this station uh, who have degrees from these uh, uh, fine institutions of higher learning. So they are letting some of us in here and there, uh, your critique notwithstanding. Let me start with a broad question. We'll narrow our way through the hour. Um, when you write a book like this that critiques this system that makes a whole lot of money for a whole lot of people and educates some of the best and brightest minds in this country, what kind of pushback do you get? Yeah, uh, a lot. Um, it's definitely very challenging for people. Um, when you were saying what you were saying about um, having colleagues who attended these colleges, I was uh, thinking to myself, yeah, it's great that they're not segregationists anymore. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure how much uh, congratulations they deserve. Yeah. And um, you know, the race diversity numbers are terrible. Um, Harvard and Yale and Stanford they are about their black representation is about 15%, but basically at every other affluent college, it hovers around 8%. Um, there's one uh, civil rights leader who said the numbers are so consistent, it seems like collusion. Mm-hmm. And then when you start talking socioeconomic diversity, the numbers are absolutely terrible. Mm-hmm. To your point about that civil rights leader who made that comment, it's a powerful comment. Not the first time I've heard that. Um, what say you, Evermandry, about that notion that these numbers remain so consistently low that it feels like, it looks like collusion? And if they say, you know what they say, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, but you tell me. Yeah, I mean, for sure, you know, um, there the the main Supreme Court case on this point on uh, affirmative action is a case called uh, Baki, and it concerns mm-hmm. uh, the University of California Davis Medical system, School System. So constitutional law on this is that a college can't have a quota. Um, but, <laughs> you know, when year after year, uh, you know, the share of black students is 7.8% and 7.9% and 7.7%, it's, it's very hard to imagine that it's not a quota system. Um, mm-hmm. It's just not being called that. But like you said, that's sure what it looks like and feels like. To your to your uh, invocation of uh, of Baki, uh, you're invoking of Baki and uh, and the Supreme Court. Let me follow you uh, there because you also know the most recent case they've heard about affirmative action or hearings um, were 
uh, oral arguments rather were some weeks back. And we're just waiting uh, now, uh, not holding our breath, but just waiting for a decision on affirmative action as we know it in 2023. My read of this and anybody with half a brain, I think uh, their read is the same as mine, which is that we are about to see affirmative action uh, be cast aside by this 63 conservative court. And the case they heard most recently, as you know, involves two schools, speaking of Ivy Leagues, Harvard uh, and University of North Carolina. So since you went there with affirmative action in the Supreme Court, um, are you in the same uh, boat that I'm in, that it's just a matter of time sure. before we get a decision where they where they wipe this thing out? It's all over. I mean, it's as, it's as inevitable as the outcome of, uh, you know, of overturning Roe v. Wade. Um, race-based affirmative action is going to end. And um, I've written about this, and I think, I hope... Everybody who's listening understands that it will be Harvard's fault. It's because of Harvard's indignant insistence on continuing to do affirmative action for rich whites that race-based affirmative action will end. And, you know, I think reasonable minds can differ on affirmative action. I don't think Clarence Thomas's position is crazy, right, Um, which is that affirmative action can have a stigmatizing effect. But... Could anybody deny that the descendants of slavery or the victims of segregatory um, residential discrimination, redlining, which all of these colleges engaged in, as all of them have been benefited directly or indirectly from slave labor, have a morally compelling case on compensatory affirmative action? And that baby's going to be thrown out with the bathwater because Harvard just insisted that it had to have a lacrosse team and continue to admit uh, legacy applicants and people who give money to the library. Mm. You said two or three things right there that I want to come back to right now. Let me just take them, take my time and take them one at a time. Uh, first of all, again, I do this all the time on this program, Evan. I'm on the air three hours a day, <clears throat> nine to noon Pacific time. Here in L.A., our station's heard across the nation, but we are flagshipped in Los Angeles. Uh, and every day I walk in here, I never know how the dots are going to connect. We literally just spent an hour talking about what you just put your finger on, the slave trade. We were specifically talking not about the transatlantic slave trade, but about a book that's out that talks about America's domestic slave trade, the internal slave trade. We just spent an hour you know, delving into that. And here you come now, unaware of that, and connected uh, these dots in the way that you are. So I just love how the show just, you know, again, has a way of connecting dots from hour to hour to hour that we don't even see when we produce this thing every day. That mm-hmm. said, the second issue, I just wanted to underscore that for the audience. I'm sure they already picked up on that. The second point I want to come to is Clarence Thomas. I hear your point that Clarence Thomas has made the argument uh, that, you know, these kinds of program, uh, programs can be stigmatizing for black folk. But that ain't how that Negro felt when he got into Yale out of pinpoint Georgia. Uh, on an affirmative action program. It didn't seem to bother him then, so I don't, I don't like that. I hear your point, but I don't like it. I mean, I, I detest it, frankly, when Clarence Thomas says that or has said that because it didn't bother him when he got into Yale on one of these programs, Evan. I also disagree with his point, as I disagree with almost everything that he says. Uh, I'm just trying to, I was just trying to distinguish between crazy arguments with which I disagree right. and rational arguments with which I disagree. But what I want to say is this. Let me frame it a different way. Okay. I don't know what perfect justice in the United States looks like. And it's not like if we end practices that I talk about in my book that we'll have perfect equity in the United States. But I sure know what injustice looks like. Mm. And I know that giving rich white people tips in the admissions process is unjust. So let's end that. And then we can fight out what to do with the who gets the lion's share of the opportunity that's created 
but I know that it shouldn't be going to rich white people. I'm just going to throw out, I won't throw out a ton of data. Based on 10 years ago, the average Harvard family, average student, Harvard student came from a family making half a million dollars a year. More people in the United States, there were 38 colleges where more people come from the top 1% than the bottom 60%. And by contrast, I'm a professor at the City University of New York. Two-thirds of our students come from families making less than $30,000 a year. Mm. We run an apartheid higher education system in America. Mm. We have colleges of the rich, where the white, rich white kids go on to become investment bankers and management consultants. And I teach at a college of the poor. Students are just as smart, but they go on to do public service. They become our teachers and our firefighters and our police officers. And we pretend that the students at Harvard and Yale are better somehow. I love Evan Mandry, and you can see why. <laughs> I, just, I, I, just, I, just, I just met the guy, uh, but I love him because he does not bite his tongue. When you call our system of higher education in this country an apartheid system, that's a damning. It's a strong indictment, but guess what? It's real. It's as real as rain. Uh, it is an apartheid higher education system. And when you write a book called Poison Ivy, How Elite Colleges Divide Us, you got to be a bad man and uh, a man full of courage, conviction, and commitment to even write a book like that. One more thing, and then we'll move forward. I'm going to spend the most of this hour getting into the book and let Evan explain how these elite colleges are, in fact, dividing us. But when you said a moment ago, I get it, but I want to, just, I want to give you the mic again, just take, take a couple minutes here and break this down so that I know that everybody, including my mama listening, is on the same page with me and you, Evan. When you said that yeah. when affirmative action ends as we know it, it will be Harvard's fault. We can all blame Harvard for this. Explain that in layman's terms. Okay, so here's... Uh, based on the Equal Protection Clause, right, of the 14th Amendment, um, a private or public institution or a private institution accepting public money can only engage in race-based, race-conscious admissions if it serves a compelling interest and that their intervention has to be narrowly tailored. So let me translate this. If they, if they want to admit more students of color, they have to do they have to do it if there's an, a non-race-based way they can do it they have to do that so here's the simple thing they could do they could stop letting in legacy candidates or donors or the children of faculty of alumni and that would increase all of those spots would become available and those we could distribute those to the asian american plaintiffs in the lawsuit and black students and students of color Right. There is a race neutral way to achieve their stated goal of diversity, which is to stop discriminating in favor of rich white people. And they refused to do it. They had a committee. They convened a committee that said, oh, are there race neutral ways we can increase diversity? And they decided that legacy was so vital to them. Legacy is the tip that uh, kids of alumni get when they apply that they couldn't sacrifice it. And it's preposterous. There's not a shred of evidence to suggest that you know, uh, legacies who attend a college are any more generous to the university than, uh, you know, people who are first generation. Of course, wouldn't a first generation Yale student be all the more grateful for the opportunity that they mm, were given? Mm, mm. Well, there's your answer. I wanted to make sure before we uh, move forward that we lay this foundation so that all of us are on the same page here in this conversation about why we can blame Harvard for what the Supreme Court is about to do on affirmative action. Now, let me put a final point on this, which I know Evan will appreciate. 
Um, you can blame Har- you can blame Harvard on two levels. You can blame Harvard <laughs> for what Evan just described. You can also blame Harvard because practically every member of the Supreme Court who's about to make this That's decision right. went to law school where Harvard. Clarence Thomas went to Yale, other side of the coin. Uh, Coney Barrett went to Notre Dame, but basically everybody else, including Katanji Brown Jackson, who we love, KBJ, all went yeah. to Harvard. You can blame Harvard for getting us in this mess. You can blame Harvard for the decision they're about to make because they all went to Harvard. On that note, I digress. When we come forward, we'll get right into this book, Poison Ivy, How Elite Colleges Divide Us. Its author is Evan Mandry, and you're listening to him right now on KBLA Talk 1580. We've got a lot to talk about. Good thing we've got three hours. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. Unpacking uh, the meaning of this text that's gotten Evan in all kind of trouble, but he ain't scared. <laughs> so uh, I'm delighted to be in good, dialogue good with trouble, him. Good trouble. Yeah, good trouble. There you go. John John, John Lewis is right about that. Good trouble, good trouble. So let me uh, let me pass the mic to you. And, I, again, that's why I love doing this show uh, one hour at a time, one guest per hour, so we can really drill down on these things. I've got uh, a news, traffic, and sports break at the bottom of the hour, so that means you've got about ten minutes to just take your time and explain to us, and I'll, I'll, I'll jump in when I need to, uh, but it's your book. So start telling us, uh, Evan, right now, how these elite colleges divide us, and I'll jump in as necessary, sir. It's all yours. All right. Well, let me just start by saying kind of where I come from. So uh, I'm a, I'm a middle-class kid, and both of my parents um, went to CUNY. They went to Brooklyn College. Um, my dad was a, a high school principal, and I've basically spent my whole life around schools. Um, so I, I went to Harvard for college and law school. I was a lawyer for a little while. And then I, I came to the City University of New York, and I've been a professor for 24 years. I, I teach, um, I'm a death penalty expert, and I teach ethics and criminal law. I love what I do. Um, and I've finagled my way. Uh, I teach a lot of our honors students. Um, we have a really cool honors program called the Macaulay Honors College. I teach lots and lots of students who have over 1350 on their SATs. Mm. And um, I taught at Harvard, too. I was a a teaching fellow uh, when I was in law school. Uh, And I will say, and as I said, basically everybody I teach is a poor student of color. Um, I've taught one rich white person in my, in my career. Um, she was, uh, she was amazing. She was, uh, she was, she's a forensic scientist. She's awesome, but that's it. Yeah. You know, one out of 2000. And, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't think you can do what I've done and not be changed by the experience. And I, if I'm sometimes like asked, like, what animated me to write the book? Mm-hmm. And I'll say it as directly as I can, because I've lived in a bunch of different types of communities and I've taught in kind of every school imaginable. The story that rich white people tell about poor people of color is that they are lazy and stupid, and that's why they deserve their status. And I will say, after a career of teaching those people, that nothing could be further from the truth. Mm. And the students I teach... Uh, the people I live with for most of my life, none of those kids work. The students I teach, all of them work, mostly full-time. Uh, I have a kid now. I talk about him. I, I love this guy. His name is Jorge Velez. And um, he's in my class, and I was, he's told me, I was like, what do you want to do? He's like, I want to be a cop. And I was like, well, the world needs police officers, Lord knows. But, you know, you could be a lawyer if you want. He's like, really? So he's going to law school now. I think he's going to end up at Case Western Law School. He's a very smart guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when we were talking about preparing for 
the LSAT. I'm always like, well, do you have any money to pay for a course? What does he do? He works at IHOP and he caddies in the summer. I was like, well, how much money do you have in the bank? And he says, $100,000. So this guy worked his ass off and he squirreled away that money and he invested it shrewdly. And meanwhile, he did very well on his SAT and he's a 4.0 student. You're telling me that that kid isn't better prepared to succeed or more meritorious, whatever merit means, of a spot in a top law school than somebody who grew up, you know, with every possible advantage. And what I most detest, I detest many things about what elite colleges do, is that the whole meritocracy myth, right? Meritocracy is a double-edged sword. If I say that the people at Harvard and Yale deserve their privileged status, then by implication, by necessary implication, I also say that the people at uh, our poor public colleges deserve their lower status. And it's BS, right? Mm. And, um, you know, I, I further detest what colleges do to those kids. So, I, uh, you know, it would be mitigating if Harvard and Yale let in a bunch of rich white kids and turned them into do-gooders. They do the opposite. Mm, about 60 to 70 percent of them go into investment banking or management consulting or the tech sector. Two percent become teachers. OK. And almost all of those are Teach for America, which is only a two year commitment. Right. By contrast, where I teach, depending how you define public service, two thirds to three quarters of our graduates go into public service. I'm sure it's the same with uh, the California state system. But if you walk the streets of New York City, as I'm sure it must be the case in L.A., you meet a cop or a teacher or your kid's elementary school, uh, you know, a, a cop or a firefighter or your kid's elementary school teacher, the chances are that they went to a public college. And so, you know, we have, you know, it's, it's apartheid in every sense of the word. It's segregated, but it's also segregated by status. Mm. So we're letting in rich people and then we're putting them into careers that, sorry, I don't really think serve the public interest. No offense against, uh, investment bankers at Goldman Sachs. And meanwhile, the people that actually do good for society, public servants, you know, they go and they make $60,000 a year and um, we treat them like second class citizens mm. at best. Yeah, at best. Um, what your book does. Thank you for that. I didn't want to interrupt while you were sort of laying the foundation. So I think <laughs> we, all, we all understand uh, what animates you, what 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 motivates you, what your life's work and witness has been all about. And now the audience knows, as I already knew, that you are a product of Harvard, <laughs> which leads me now to start asking a few questions. The first question is, and I started earlier in the hour, I didn't, I didn't want to, you know, didn't want to put a spoiler alert out so quickly because I knew your Harvard, your right. Harvard uh, pedigree. Um, so I started by asking you how you get treated when you write a book called Poison Ivy, How Elite Colleges Divide Us. What kind of pushback you get? You answered that question. Now, let me put a finer point on it. You know where I'm going. How does one who is a product of Harvard write a book and offer critique like you have of Harvard? I'm not a product of Harvard. I'm a product of CUNY. I've spent 24 years uh, teaching uh, people that I love. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, I spent, you know, seven years at an institution that, well, I mean, I revere the academy. I like what it stands for, but I never felt like I belonged there. Um, in retrospect, I think I was uh, kind of a, uh, there was a scholarship program. I was a token middle class admit. Uh, I was the diversity, if you can, if you want to laugh at something. 
uh, I, I've, I've never thought of myself that way. I've never given money. I've never felt comfortable at reunions. Um, I was ironically, uh, I was the president of the student government, but I was fiercely critical of what they were doing. Um, I don't think I had the language when I was 19 years old to understand how profoundly classist it was. Um, I knew it was racist. Um, when I, when I was my first summer of law school, I was a summer associate at a firm. We had a lunch with the managing partner and I said, Hmm, I was like, and I meant this like as a genuine question. I was like, well, why aren't our race representation numbers better? Like you pay the top money in the field. Like, shouldn't you be able to, you know, overrepresent people of color versus law school? And I never, <laughs> I got a derogatory review the next day. So I've never felt a place in these institutions. I, I think, you know, your language, Tavis, is like, I, I'm here to bear witness. Yeah. I'm here to bear witness to say that those people are not smarter or better or more deserving. The education at those places is not better. Um, and it is obscene, the resources that are lavished upon these people. And the rationalizations are preposterous. Mm. Why? I mean, you know, go to Varsity Blues. You don't know what the scandal is. It's not that some guy defrauded the system. It's that Rowan Crewer being a downhill skier gets you into college in the first place. Who cares whether Yale has a squash team? Mm-hmm. Does anybody really follow their results? Let, 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 let me do this. Let, yeah. me, let me do news traffic and sports, as I promised I had to do yeah, a moment yeah, yeah. ago. No, I'm here. No, I got you. And I'm glad you're here. And this is great. We, we come forward. I want to uh, interrogate a few things you've said right quick. Number one, that the education system there is not better. Uh, I, I, I'm sure somebody in the audience rolled their eyes when you said that going to Harvard and Yale and Stanford and beyond doesn't give you a better education. I'll let you unpack that, number one. But more broadly speaking, we want to spend some time talking about how this system doesn't just perpetuate uh, inequity on the campuses themselves, but how it perpetuates that kind of divide in our society writ large, the harm that it does to our society writ large. Um, a lot more to talk about with Evan Mandry. His book is called Poison Ivy, How Elite Colleges Divide Us. More with him in a moment on KBLA Talk 1580. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where we turn red lights to green lights and keep it moving. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. I hate stepping on the doobies. I love the doobies. I got a brother named Doobie, and this is one of my favorite tracks from the doobies, What a Fool Believes, which ties in quite nicely to this conversation. Thank you, Odell. What a Fool Believes. Uh, you heard Evan Mandy, our guest, say a moment ago that education at these Ivy League institutions is not better and education out of the schools. So if you're a fool to believe that, that's what Evan Mandery says. His book is called Poison Ivy, How Elite Colleges Divide Us. Poison Ivy, How Elite Colleges Divide Us. And in a moment, I'm going to ask Evan why he argues that the education in these institutions is not that much better, number one. Uh, and if it ain't that much better, then why is it so expensive, number two. And number three, more broadly, how do these elite colleges divide us and cause greater harm to our society, so much so that we can't get to a real conversation, much less uh, healing 
around the issues of poverty and economic inequality and economic immobility. We'll get to all that in just a second with Evan Mandry. Uh, some breaking news here, which again, not just a song by the Doobies, What a Fool Believes, but this breaking news ties in Evan quite nicely to our conversation. I didn't, I couldn't even plan this any better. Breaking news. I'm reading now. The Justice Department accused Los Angeles-based City National Bank on Thursday of discrimination by refusing to underwrite mortgages in predominantly black and Latino communities, requiring the bank to now pay more than $31 million in the largest redlining settlement in department history. Reading on, City National is the latest bank in the past several years to be found systematically avoiding lending to racial and ethnic minorities, a practice that the Biden administration has set up its own task force to combat. A little bit more. The Justice Department says that between 2017 and 2020, City National avoided marketing and underwriting mortgages in majority in black Latino in uh, in majority black and Latino neighborhoods in Los Angeles County. Other banks operating in those neighborhoods received six times the number of mortgage applications that City National did, according to the uh, federal government. One final paragraph here. The Justice Department alleges that City National, a bank with roughly $95 billion in assets, was so reluctant. Listen to this, everybody in the Crenshaw community right now. They were so reluctant to operate in neighborhoods where most of the residents are people of color. The bank only opened one branch in those neighborhoods in the past 20 years. Do you all know where that branch is? Of course you do. It's right on Crenshaw. Right near Obama. That is the one branch in 20 years that the Justice Department says the city national actually opened in a black or brown neighborhood. This is a national story with local implications. This is the branch right down the street from this studio, Evan. I'm literally 10 blocks, maybe 10 blocks right now from that branch and uh, uh, right down the street. In comparison, the bank opened or acquired 11 branches in that same time period. In addition, no employee was dedicated to underwriting mortgages at that one branch on Crenshaw, unlike branches in majority white neighborhoods. I could go on. I'll stop. City National now required to pay more than $31 million for redlining, uh, disavowing, disallowing black folk and brown folk uh, to get home mortgages. Uh, the latest bank to be subject uh, to this kind of embarrassment, what ought to be at least embarrassment and humiliation, but somebody, uh, somebody named Evan Mandry raised the issue of redlining moments ago in this conversation and made the point that some of this has to do with these elite colleges and universities. And I'll let him make the connection. Evan, take it away. Well, I mean, they're so deeply connected, I would say, like inextricably connected. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law. Uh, it's about America's shameful, pervasive history of the practices that you're talking about. And, you know, my, the title of my book is a, it's a double entendre, right? It's Ivy League schools, but it's also suburban Ivy. And they're very, very deeply tied together. And, I mean, I think in our own ways, we've probably both spent our lives thinking about these issues. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I spend a lot of time teaching smart people, and I'm like, well, there but for the grace of God go I. And if they had the opportunity that I had, um, you know, they would have gotten to where I did. And what separates it? 
And to me, it's home ownership. That's the big deal. You know, the income disparities in America, the white-black income disparities in America are dwarfed by wealth disparities. And, you know, my dad, you know, you mentioned tuition. My dad had no money. My, my dad was a high school principal. But when I got in, I got no financial aid. How did he pay? He took out a second mortgage on our house. And that's how I was able to go to college. And meanwhile, and I mean, I don't think people can understand this unless they live these lives. You know, my students' lives can fall apart over hundreds of dollars. Um, I write about a woman in the book who I love. She's uh, she's finishing her, uh, she's in the middle of her 1L year at Northeastern Law School. Superstar. Mm-hmm. She's about to go off to college and she says, John Jay won't release my transcript. I owe them $700 and I don't have any money. So what do I do? I paid the money, right? Mm. But people can't understand if you have no cushion. Homeownership is the transformative economic moment in a person or a family's life. You have an appreciating asset. You're not, you know, uh, flushing money down the toilet on rent. Mortgage interest is tax deductible. And it's available, you know, for much of American history was available only to white people. And I'll just draw another connection for you. Um, we moved, um, we actually moved to Montclair, New Jersey, which is kind of wonderfully diverse in a lot of ways. But we used to live in a right-leaning affluent suburb, which I'm embarrassed by. And I ran for school board. Mm-hmm. And somebody said to me, well, what would you most want to do? And I was like, well, what I would most want to do is I'd most want to bring some kids in from outside the district. So we offered the resources that we have to say 10 kids from a socioeconomically dis- disadvantaged district. And um, the woman who was the head of the school board, I won't identify her by name, you know what she said to me? She said, big lynch you. And I was like, yeah, that's probably right. <laughs> and, you know, I, I mean, how do you get into, how do you get yourself in these communities are organized around getting their kids access to these colleges. That's why they're running lacrosse teams on giant fields. That's why they're running 28 AP courses and sending their model United Nations team, uh, you know, over to the Hague to compete because they're developing the kinds of narratives that these colleges choose to value. I'll just say one thought experiment and your audience can decide for itself whether they think this is true or not. If Harvard randomly selected its freshman class, out of the valedictorians and salutatorians of every high school across America, do people think that that class would be full of really, really smart kids who would be deserving of that type of opportunity and would benefit from it? Well, I would say resoundingly yes, but the difference would be that class would reflect the diversity of America Mm -hmm. in every sense. Mm -hmm. But I'm sorry to Exeter and Groton and Andover, they wouldn't still be able to get 10 kids in per year on that model. Mm -hmm. That's a powerful and arresting uh, point because there are black valedictorians and black salutatorians all across the country from high schools everywhere. Uh, and I hear the point that Evan uh, makes. If they chose it from that realm, um, clearly they uh, they can do the work. If they chose from that realm, uh, it would make a difference in the diversity at places like Harvard. When we come forward, I'm going to put the question directly to Evan, uh, why he believes that education is not better in these places. And if it's not better, then why is it so expensive? We're talking with Evan Mandry, author of the provocative new uh, text called Poison Ivy, How Elite Colleges Divide Us. You're listening to KBLA Talk. I don't think it's better. I mean, 
you know, uh, how many how many professors did you have in college who you thought really changed your life? Mm-hmm. A handful, a handful that changed my life. I thought a few, right? Yeah, yeah, three or four or something yeah, like that, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the hit rate. <laughs> that's kind of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at these big colleges, most of the classes are taught in lecture format. So my favorite class was uh, a class called Justice with a professor named Michael Sandel. I basically teach the same class. I had 800 students in the class. So that's not, that's not what I think of as teaching. That's performance. It might be edifying performance. Um, you know, tenure and promotion at, at elite colleges is not really based on teaching. Um, PhD candidates don't really get any training in teaching. I had one good math teacher. I had a good press professor for con law and I had the guy for ethics and, you know, everybody else I just thought was sort of okay. Um, and I presume, you know, if you asked a CUNY student or, uh, you know, they'd say the same thing. Well, I had a few professors who were really good. It's just not organized that way. Now, are you letting in more students who are better prepared? Sure. So it's going to create an illusion <laughs> that the student, that the, the educational process is better, but, there's no evidence of any kind, no statistical evidence, no there's not even any effort to assess this, that these colleges are adding more value. And when you're talking about like the values that it teaches people, I actually think they're doing harm. They're teaching people that what matters in life is making as much money as possible. Mm. How can they charge as much as they can? Well, I don't know. Economically, these degrees are worth a lot of money. So, I mean, if you're kind of looking at what the the value of a degree is for the average student. Um, you could rationalize charging three or four hundred thousand dollars a year. I'm sure the people that sent their money to Rick Singer would pay a million dollars a year for them to for their kids to go to college. And from my perspective, it would be better. I mean, at least you know, gouge the rich and give that money to expand opportunity for socioeconomically disadvantaged people. What difference does it make if my family's expected contribution is $10,000, whether they charge 80 in tuition and my family gets 70 in financial aid, or they charge a million in tuition and my family gets 990000 in financial aid. Um, the whole pricing system is just, it's preposterous. And But you know what it does, and I don't know if people know this, but Ivy League colleges let in about two-thirds of their students to early admissions. Mm-hmm. What student of ordinary means can apply to commit to going to a college that will cost them $340,000 without seeing their financial aid package first. But that's what early admissions requires. Yeah. So they uh, don't apply. No, that's a proud, that's a proud point about early admissions. Um, yeah. Most of us couldn't, couldn't make that happen even if we wanted to. Let me read a couple of comments. Let, let me read a couple of comments um, uh, from listeners and get your take on them. Here's the first one. The root issue that impacts quality is a lack of educational resources at non-elite institutions. And the root barrier is the fact that elite academic institutions have no commitment to the recruitment of low-level income students or students of color because they do not place value on difference or social justice. I believe, Tavis, this will become apparent uh, once affirmative action is repealed. Your thoughts, Evan Mander? Uh, I, I, I agree with most of what that person said. Uh, I mean, you know, this is a staggering statistic. John Jay, my college, um, its average expenditure per student is about $15,000. Mm-hmm. Yale's is about $150,000 per student. 
okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, $150,000 per student. Now, at, at the point where you're spending $100,000 per student, per student, and you're like, hmm, we really want to bump that up. Well, what are you buying? You know, third math tutors, uh, two study abroad experiences, uh, superfood in the dining hall. But these become barriers to admitting socioeconomically disadvantaged students because it becomes expensive. And look, and I mean, I'm taking, you know, I, I think private colleges are terrible, but America's systematic disinvestment in public colleges is shameful. Hmm. What's um, what's the what's the rub against private institutions specifically um, vis-a-vis public? I mean, if, if it's done right, it's done right. If it's done wrong, it's done wrong. Does that distinction have to be made between private and public on the right on the right with regard to the right, wrong uh, framework? I mean, you know, the distinction I'll just make is between obscenely wealthy and everybody else. So, you know, Harvard has an endowment of $52 billion per year. Mm-hmm. 52 bil- 50, sorry, $52 billion, which, you know, in terms of its capital reserves would make it about the 35th wealthiest nation in the world. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. So they spend, well, these colleges all spend about 4.5% of their endowment per year. Let's say they spend 1% more. <clears throat> They'd still be worth more than a trillion dollars by 2100 or so. Their endowments would still grow. But what could you do with $500 million a year? Well, it costs about $200 million a year to run a college. That's what John Jay costs. That's what Harvard costs. How about Harvard opens up an entirely new campus? How about Harvard, Detroit? just dedicated to expanding opportunities. So they could still keep letting in their six and seven Andover and Exeter students every year, <clears throat> but they're going to dilute their interest by saying, we're going to, we're going we're to, and none of these colleges have expanded uh, their class sizes in 50 years. We're going to do this one right. Um, and you don't think that would transform Detroit? That would be a win and they could afford to do it. All I'm going to say, all I'm saying is, look, when, you know, to me, private and public, well, it depends what they say. Yeah. So if they're just like, hey, we're profit maximizers, we're just like any old corporation. Well, then there's nothing to say, but they should sure stop getting tax breaks. They should store, stop being treated as nonprofits, which they are, because those tax exemptions cost us, American taxpayers, about $20 billion per year. So they better either let in a diverse population or they better let in a socioeconomically diverse population or they better make rich kids do-gooders, or we should stop investing in them. So here's the question. i got two, maybe time for two more quick questions in three minutes I have left, uh, tight three here. Um, You've already referred to our system of higher education as an apartheid higher education system. I don't disagree with you on that point. How much worse does it get when affirmative action is repealed as you see it? We don't know. Um, You know, we'll see. I mean, class-based affirmative action could pick up a lot of race diversity, right? Mm -hmm. A really, really well-construction class-based program could do really well. My gut says that the wealthiest colleges will do something like that, but everybody else will feel like they can't afford to, and that we'll actually see some retrenchment and things will get worse. And in 90 seconds, here's my exit question. What, to your mind, there are many of these laid out in your book, but what would you put your finger on for our audience as the greatest danger, the greatest harm these elite colleges do to the nation writ large? Uh, America is being torn apart by mistrust of elites, right? What, what, did, what did Trump most skillfully exploit on his pathway to the presidency? 
It was mistrust of elites. That's a that, by the way, is a move that he borrowed from Adolf Hitler. Um, but it sure is easy to mistrust elites, and I mean, you know, the editorial board of the New York Times and also the management committee at uh, Goldman Sachs. If you're born into a situation where you or your children have no chance whatsoever of getting access to those institutions, uh, either at the university or into the profession. And um, it's, um, I mean, that's why I'm going to take a flyer on this and think that you and I are both really, really worried about democracy in America. And mm. um, I think that's at the root of it. Nope. Uh, you were right about that. That wasn't, uh, <laughs> that wasn't a wild, wasn't a wild guess on your part. Yeah. Uh, yeah, our yeah. De- our democracy is beyond fragile. As I as I say, I don't even think it is a democracy. We are an exper- at best we are an experiment in democracy. We ain't there yet, uh, and one could even go further than that and argue that it's a plutocracy, an oligarchy. We ain't got time for that. But I'm with you uh, in that regard. But our democracy is on the precipice, uh, and uh, again, we are simpatico in that regard. His name is Evan Mandery. Uh, he is an Emmy and uh, Peabody award-winning author. Uh, his book is called po- his latest. It's called Poison Ivy, How Elite Colleges Divide Us. Uh, I found it worth reading, and I think you will as well. Evan Mandry, congrats on the text. Thank you so much for this conversation, my friend. I appreciate you, sir. I, I appreciate this so much. This is wonderful. Have a great day. Thank you. All the best to you. More of Tavis Motti at the news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 15.